This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth managers who go above and beyond to guide and support you. CanDo is more than just an attitude. It's navigating today for a brighter tomorrow. Visit CanDoWealth.com. Hello and welcome to a special Saturday edition of Coffee House Shots. I'm Katie Balls and I'm joined by Tom Baldwin, who has just penned, I think, the first significant, at least, Keir Starmer biography. Tom is almost been everywhere already (laughs) serialized in the times there's lots of book reviews out most of which are glowing but I suppose for listeners I mean we've done a countless podcast where we say who is Starmer what does he stand for um but first how did the book come about because initially it wasn't meant to be a book with your name on it is that right no initially I was brought in to help him write an autobiography and I mean I think with some exceptions books by politicians serving politicians are not always great. They, they they don't have time to do them, do them well. And Keir in particular, I think, felt uncomfortable about talking about himself, you know, doing the big I am, this, you know, page after page of him saying how great he is. He just, in the same way, he hasn't always been very good at opening out as a person and as a politician. He felt doing that in a book form was even more awkward for him. But that's why he needed a book, because... He knows people are asking questions about who he is, what he really stands for, where he would take the country. And so I, after a sort of few drinks in the pub where he was putting the autobiography out of its misery, I suggested this biography. And I said, look, it can't be authorised. No one wants to read an authorised biography. I've got to talk to your critics. But I think your story needs telling, and it can't be told in a speech, a video clip or a soundbite. It's a complicated story because he is complicated. People are complicated. We don't often let our politicians be as complicated as they really are. And I suppose when you're um, looking at Keir, the complex character, often people say he is Keir, the boring character. What do you think it is that makes him more complicated than another politician? I think he doesn't fit the mould of politicians. He entered politics quite late. He's only, well, he's 52 when he became an MP. And he'd formed his identity outside politics. I mean, there's been lawyers who've become politicians before, but no one who'd been quite as successful and as prominent a lawyer as Keir Starmer. I also think his childhood, which I'd go into in a lot of depth, is a big, big factor in him. He had this very difficult relationship with a rather sort of austere, overbearing, old-fashioned Victorian father almost, who had his own issues about people looking down on him. He had a very sick, disabled mother... He had a brother with difficulties learning. And in that rather cramped, ramshackle house in Surrey, with all this stuff going on, there wasn't a lot of room for a young Keir Starmer to learn how to emote. I think he became quite tightly bound then. He then becomes even more tightly bound as a lawyer, where you don't win cases on the basis of where you where you lived in a pebble dash semi or your dad being a toolmaker. You win cases on the basis of facts and evidence. And so... In a way, his identity became formed as rather sort of bound up in himself and fact-based. He doesn't do the sort of flourishes that politicians generally do. And he's had to learn that on the job, in the white light of public scrutiny. And that's been difficult. And that's been part of the process of writing this book, getting him to open out, chisel these details out of him. 
Yeah, because I think reading the book, one of the parts that really stuck out to me, as you mentioned, is the new details on his upbringing. Because there had already been some, I think, about his difficult relationship with his dad, but the book really gets to the heart of almost explaining it. And I wondered, I mean, for listeners, obviously they should all read the book in full. But they can I mean, pre-order particularly... it now. They can pre-order it now. <laughs> while stocks last. We'll get a few more of those in before we're over, don't worry. Um, but for listeners, you know, just to give them a taste of it, I mean, the bit that really struck me was the Labour leader having that difficult relationship with his dad and then regretting not telling him how much he loved him on his deathbed or the last time he saw him and then finding out that actually his dad was very proud of him because there were all these, you know, bits, um, you know, in the house who'd been staying up watching Keir, but that hadn't really been expressed to him. Yeah, I mean, this is one of several times when his eyes welled up, actually. We had a lot of interviews about this and he's, in the process of writing this book, he was piecing his own story together and it's quite an unusual thing to do in your mid-50s, early 60s now. And he almost found out about his dad by becoming Labour leader. So he did this interview just after his dad had died. And just before this interview, he'd found at the back of a cupboard, hidden away, a scrapbook written in his very neat, the dad's very neat tool-making engineering hand with everything about Keir, but he'd kept it secret and hidden because he hadn't wanted Keir to know how proud he was. And then he did an interview, perhaps with his scrapbook in mind, where he said his dad had never said he was proud of him. And a woman from the village he grew up in in Surrey phoned him up and said, you've got him completely wrong. You're doing him a disservice because he was proud of you, he just couldn't tell you. And I'd go round his house after your mother died and he'd be sitting there with a Parliament channel on hoping to capture a glimpse of you because he was so proud of you. And this is, it's like he found that out only because he did an interview as Labour leader and he then thinks back to when he last saw his dad and they hadn't hugged or probably even touched for years. They just didn't do that. It's a very stiff relationship. And he really, really regrets that he, his dad couldn't say he loved him and he couldn't say he loved him back. And as we've almost both alluded to, I think that one of the things that's really interesting about this book is I definitely feel like I know more about Keir Starmer from having read it. And I, and I think, and actually speaking to figures in the lobby, some who, you know, specialise in priding themselves on knowing Keir Starmer, they also felt the same because he's not someone who is particularly comfortable talking about himself. I think he often feels as though that looks a bit showy, but also for the reasons you said, it just isn't his natural reflex at the same time. What's it like trying to get, you know, I suppose cut through when you're having these, I mean, how many conversations did you have with um, Keir Starmer for this? And of course, a former journalist, but knowing when to kind of push and when to back away to get that unique insight that you really need for a book like this. I did sometimes feel quite intrusive in that you're trying to cajole someone who doesn't want to talk about some very difficult things in his life. I mean, it's not unique as a politician having difficult things happen in his life, but I think it is an interesting insight to someone who's likely to be the next prime minister. And I mean, I had dozens of conversations with him and it's like slowly unwrapping him. You know, he, you know, you'd say, you know, how did you feel? He'd go, oh, I was upset. And you go, could he sort of turn that into a sentence? You go, I was very upset. Go, oh. <laughs> so you, you're trying to get more <laughs> out of it. <laughs> yeah. Um, and slowly, I think it did emerge. And I think it's, it's also reflected in who he is as a political leader now in that he's not 
a big show-off like Boris Johnson was, you know, a former editor, a spectator. He's not inspirational like Tony Blair. He's, he's Keir Starmer. You know, he wants to get things done. He lights up in meetings when you talk about how you can unblock the electricity grid because that's how he can get closer to his mission of clean energy by 2030. He's not interested in having a big geopolitical discussion about things which he, most people around the table don't know very much, but like the sound of their voice. He's just not interested in that sort of thing. I mean, I've got this line at the back of the book where I talk about how much of politics has been spectacle. So Tony Blair would conjure up these visions of castles in the sky and Boris Johnson would gather a crowd around watching him set fire to what we've got. And Keir Starmer talked about building blocks and he puts one building block on top of another and he moves it around sometimes. And no one's going to get off on watching that. By the end of it, he might have built a house. And that's the difference. And in the book, you have Angela Rayner, his deputy, talking about how he's just not political, which to me struck me as a very interesting quote because I suppose it's now at the point where because Keir Starmer is so ahead in the polls and looks very strong, and because I think she was being quite honest, it I don't think she means it to be an insult, but you imagine in um, different circumstances someone saying that and you'd be like, is this, uh, you know, distancing themselves from the leader doubts about the leader type thing, which it, it doesn't feel like in this circumstance. So do you think it's fair to say, you know, one of, one of the criticisms of Keir Starmer has been he doesn't have a big vision, he isn't a particularly political creature. From your various conversations, both with Keir Starmer and those around him, would you agree with that? I think he doesn't like the word vision. He thinks it's abstract. I mean, most ordinary people don't have visions or backstories. They have ideas about where they want to go. And they can talk about childhood a bit, but they don't bang on about it all the time. Politicians are expected to have things which most people don't have. They're meant to display characteristics which ordinary people don't. And he thinks of himself as an ordinary guy. And I think he's got values, which are recognisable British values, which aren't easily formulated into an ideology. Most people in this country don't place themselves on some ideological spectrum or explain why where they are between Blair and Brown or... You know, it's just, he's not like that. He's not a politician. And Angela Rayner's comments, I think, are interesting because she says that's a strength in some ways. It also can be a weakness, yeah. I mean, Keir Starmer hasn't got a faction built around him. I mean, there's a certain sort of codependency with the right of Labour Party at the moment, but I don't think it's his natural faction. He doesn't have a Starmerism. He doesn't spend a lot of time building alliances by going down to the strangers' bar late at night doesn't like that sort of thing. He doesn't like a lot of things that you have to do in politics. And I think in some ways it's allowed him to move faster in changing the Labour Party than he would have been able to do if he had been a factional part of the Labour Party or had been part of those battles in the past. But Angela's right, it can also be a weakness. There may be a point, if he does become Prime Minister, where he'll need people to circle the wagons around him or die in the ditch for him to mix my metaphors. He, you know, he's not got some base political skills which you would expect of a leader. What's impressive about him is when he detects a deficit, he works and he perseveres and he will go from a D to a B. He'll be good enough at something he's not been good at before. His performance in PMQs or making platform speeches is streets ahead of what it was once. And he's now got pretty good at it. He doesn't like that part of politics. It's not why he became a politician, but he'll do it because that's what has to be done. 
And you mentioned comparing him to Tony Blair, defining himself against Boris Johnson in some ways. You, of course, worked very closely with Ed Miliband. Did you get much much sense of Milibandism in anything Keir Starmer was saying or similarities? Because they do certainly have quite a strong relationship, at least stronger than um, perhaps some some around Keir Starmer would like. Ed Miliband is quoted in the book saying Keir is nobody's ite. He's not a Milibandite, he's not a Blairite, he's not a Brownite. And that's very unpolitical. Ed, Ed sees that too. I mean, Keir's known Ed longer than most MPs, probably any MP. I mean, he's got to know him in 2008, I think. And Ed helped him become an MP, was, wanted him to be in his cabinet if he became prime minister. And they are still close. But there's a story in the book which I think tells you a lot about Keir Starmer. In that there's a day when Ed stepped in for Keir, last minute, because Keir had got COVID, at P&Q's. And he did really well. And a lot of people were writing, well, there's the passion we don't normally see from Keir Starmer. Why can't the Keir Starmer show that passion at the dispatch box? And sometimes when your understudy does well, your nose is a bit out of joint. None of it. Keir Starmer was sending Ed messages. He was texting him saying, brilliant. He knew it was cathartic for Ed. He knew how much that meant to him. He even texted Ed's wife, Justine, to say, will you make sure that when Ed gets home, he feels really proud of what he did today? A few weeks later, he stripped him of the post of business shadow business secretary completely ruthlessly. And I, I said, it's like, how can you be so, show so much decency and then be so ruthless? And his answer is revealing. He says, I don't see any contradiction. They're in different places. He compartmentalizes these things. He is decent to his friends and in his personal dealings. And he's ruthless as leader of the Labour Party because he says to be to do, be anything other than ruthless would be indecent to all the people who need a Labour government. And that ability to divide different sides of his brain almost, I think is fascinating. It's why he can be this reassuring, obviously decent person and then move with such speed against the left of the Labour Party and changing the Labour Party, getting to look out again to the British people. And that's why I think sometimes we don't, people who write and talk about politics don't always understand him. You know, they're, they're, they're expecting him to be a more typical political leader, and he isn't. He's very unusual and far from being boring. I've written 385 pages about him. I think he's bloody interesting. And a final question from me, which is just, I think one of the interviews you've got was particularly controversial because advisors are always, uh, you know, never meant to become the story. And yet you have Sue Gray, Keir Starmer's chief of staff's first on the record interview. Possibly the last um, as well. <laughs> yeah, well, let's see. Well, I'm going to invite her on coffee house shots next weekend, obviously. Um, but I mean, did it take much convincing? And uh, do you think she was wise to speak to you? I think Sue Gray is part of the story as Starmer prepares for government if he does win the next election. And, you know, he'd kill me if I predicted that he's going to be prime minister. He's taking nothing for granted. And that transition is about him. It's not about her. It's about how do we move from this place where no one thought Labour had a chance in 2020, or even 2021, to now everyone thinks Labour can't lose. How do we make sure that we get it, when we get into government, if we get into government, we are able to govern and make a difference. And that's about moving to a very different mode. And he wanted a civil servant in who understands government. He didn't want a political chief of staff. 
And so I thought it was very interesting talking to Sue, who's a fascinating character, because she is filled with those ambiguities and nuances of Whitehall. You know, when she sits in a policy meeting and, you know, the campaign people are talking about, yeah, we need to do a crackdown on law and order and you know, a lot more people up. She says, well, where are you going to put them? Because our prisons are full. Where are you going to put the new prisons? There's that degree of pragmatism, which I think is very Starmer-ish. And I think that she's very well suited to be Keir's chief of staff because she shares that sense of pursuing values and pursuing objectives, but within the frame of what's possible and what works rather than some big shining arc of a new idea, which get everyone in the political lobby very excited and then will crash and burn quite quickly, as so many have before. And with that, thank you, Tom, for coming on today. And for all our listeners, you can now pre-order Keir Starmer, the biography by Tom Baldwin on all good book websites. We're not going to pick a favourite. <laughs>